Died since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom prison And time keeps dragging on But that train keeps rolling On down to San Antonio When I was just a baby My mama told me, son Always be a good boy Don't ever play with guns but I shot a man in Reno just to watch him. My name is Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to have to flee your own country, spend days or weeks in a leaky boat on dangerous rolling seas, and then arrive in a new country where you are terrorised even more? Well, that's the life confronting millions of people in this world who have no choice but to seek asylum. All these people want is a fair go, but here in Australia, our government, in our name, treats these desperate people with cruelty and inhumanity. Here at 3CR, we aim to give these people a voice, a chance to speak out and let you know that they are just like us, people with hopes and aspirations, people who deserve to be treated as we would expect to be treated if we found ourselves in this position. Refugee Radio is the voice of refugees. It's hard to go on living when your future is denied. Good day and welcome to Refugee Radio, our last show for the year. Thank you so much for listening in every week, if you listen in every week. Sometimes we think there's no one listening, but if you are, thank you for that. Um, and yeah, we'll be back in January next year. Um, in the studio with me today, we have a really special guests and guests, I should say. Um, we have Donna and Andre from Behind the Wire, and they will, speaking, they will be speaking to us a bit later. Um, but in the meantime, we'll read you some news. There's not much news this week, which is kind of good. I mean, no bad news is good news, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> okay. The World Bank and the UN Refugee Agency have called for a paradigm shift in the way the world responds to refugee crises, such as the Syrian emergency, warning that the current approach is nearsighted, unsustainable, and is consigning hundreds of thousands of exiled people to poverty. A new joint report from the bank and the, U f and the UNHCR claims that 90% of the 1.7 million Syrian refugees registered in Jordan and Lebanon are living in poverty, according to local estimates. The majority of them are women and children. The refugees hosted in the two countries are particularly vulnerable as they cannot work formally and tend to be younger, less educated and have larger households. The vast majority live in informal settlements rather than refugee camps, have few legal rights and struggle to get access to public services because of the strains the unprecedented demand has put on the infrastructures of host countries. Although the report notes that current refugee assistance initiatives, such as the UNHCR Cash Assistance Program and the World Food Program Voucher Scheme are very effective, it says that they are not a solution in themselves. These programs are not sustainable and cannot foster a transition from dependence to self-reliance, said the study's authors. They rely entirely on voluntary contributions and when funding declines, fewer of the most vulnerable refugees are able to benefit. Moreover, social protection on its own does not foster a transition to work and self-reliance if access to labour markets is not available. 
If refugees are to escape poverty, adds the report, they need to be economically integrated into local communities rather than merely offered short-term assistance. These findings suggest that the current approach to managing refugee crisis in the medium and long term is not sustainable, it says. Focus must shift beyond social protection for refugees to include economic growth in the areas hosting them so that refugees and local communities can share in economic progress. This paradigm shift requires continued close collaboration between humanitarian and development partners in order to transform a humanitarian crisis into a development opportunity for all. Um, so I don't know if you guys have seen this week, um, Humans of New York, the Facebook page has been putting up a whole series on refugees um, being moved to America. And um, there's an article here about one, one of the posts. Um, so I'll, re I'll read that to you and it was really interesting. Um, U.S. actor Edward Norton has raised more than $425,000 as of Tuesday for a Syrian refugee whom he read about on a popular blog and whose tragic story moved him to tears. The Syrian, a scientist who lost seven members of his family in a bombing two years ago, including his wife and a daughter, was featured on the website Humans of New York earlier this month. The blog created in 2010 by U.S. photographer Brandon Stanton began by featuring everyday New Yorkers and sharing small snippets of their life stories, but has now expanded to include individuals from other countries. The Syrian, whom the website simply refers to as the scientist, is living in Istanbul but will soon move to Troy, Michigan. The refugee said that he is suffering from stomach cancer that has not been properly treated due to a lack of means. I just want to get back to work. I want to be a person again, said the grey-haired scientist, whose story has drawn the attention of Barack Obama. As a husband and a father, I cannot even begin to imagine the loss you've endured, Obama posted on the Humans of New York Facebook page. Norton, who has starred in films including The Incredible Hulk, Fight Club and the Oscar-winning dark comedy Birdman, has raised $426,987 as of mid-Tuesday. Let's reject the anti-human voices that tell us to fear refugees and show this man and his family what Americans are really made of, Norton said. I saw this story in one of my favorite sites, Humans of New York, and it moved me to tears, he said. Obama has pledged to take in 10,000 Syrians over the course of the next year, but many American states, apparently fearing Islamic ex Islamist extremists, will be, hi will be hiding among the flow of refugees, have said they do not want them. <clears throat> um, so, welcome to the show, Jonna and Andre, and thank you so much for coming in. I know it's a really, really hot day, and I was, I was actually ready for one of you guys to be like, it's too hot. <laughs> no, thanks for having us. Really, thank you for having us. We appreciate it. <laughs> I was so honoured to meet you today. Um, so, we'll start. We'll start off by talking about the project. So, what is the Behind the Wire project? Sure. So, um, Behind the Wire started um, early last year. Uh, it was um, uh, a friend of mine, Sienna Marope, and, and me have been working in sort of the refugee um, space for a while and um, wanted to do something about the fact that, um, you know, so often when we're talking about immigration detention, um, the voices of the people who actually experience mm -hmm. that detention are missing from that conversation. Mm -hmm. So the, the idea of Behind the Wire is quite a simple one, really, is to just try and provide a platform for those 
people who have experienced immigration detention to speak about it. Um, and I guess what we were also trying to do um, is to create an ethical framework in which to do that, to make sure that um, you know our narrators are as in control of the process as possible uh, and that the stories that they're telling are the stories they want to tell um, rather than you know having to fit into a preconceived narrative or to have to fit into... Um, other people's expectations of what you know a refugee looks like or what um, immigration detention looks like. So trying to create that space. Um, so there's a website where we publish people's um, you know sort of in-depth stories, um, and then there's also going to be a book released in 2017, um, and also other um, projects um, on the site as well, all about sort of promoting those stories. It's such an important thing, isn't it, the ethical framework, because you don't want them to feel like you're exploiting their stories for publicity or, you know, and you don't re- sometimes you worry about crossing that line. I think there are a lot of people out there who might use it to their advantage. And so it's really important to make them feel like, no, we're just trying to help you, you know, tell your stories and have that ethical framework. I think it's really important. Absolutely. Um, and I think one thing that we're reacting against is um, how certain, say, people in the media, particularly, you know, so journalists, even well-meaning journalists, um, there can be a bit of an attitude of going in, um, uh, you know, stripping a story from someone and then um, walking away. And I think part of what we're trying to do is to, um, like I said, make narrators feel as in control as possible to have... Um, interactions like this to come on shows like this and have um, amazing people like Donna come in and, um, and and speak and you know like we're trying to be um, in um, in focus as little as possible and to it's all about sort of promoting that voice um, and, and stepping back so you know that's what we're trying to do. Yes thank you. Um, so Donna do you feel like that was really good for you and in, in that they didn't sort of take your story and exploit it and and provided that really comfortable platform for you to tell your story? Yes, I actually, um, I agree. And I think, um, first of all, they did an amazing job. And I am really um, appreciative of that kind of medium. I think it's very important for people to understand and hear about the vulnerabilities and um, the human side of refugees so that they know what they're going through and that they're humans with the same kind of uh, passions and dreams like the rest of us. So I think that's important. And that's why um, when um, I was, uh, I suppose, um, recounting that, uh, you know, story um, about my time spent in detention, by the fact that it wasn't long compared to everybody else, you know, um, especially people um, that have been behind um, bars, essentially, um, for years and years. Um, but... Uh, the important thing from my perspective and the reason why I um, was willing to finally um, speak about this was because I really feel um, it's time that we need to understand what people really do go through um, and the and um, and the importance of walking in, in, in their shoes basically because um, we should we shouldn't just um, judge these people and um, conclude that um, you know, all refugees belong to a particular category, or, or um, you know, this and that. I think we just need to know that people are people have their own private stories, um, and people flee, yell by the, the 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 fear and the horrible stuff that happened to them. But people have their own um, dreams as well, and 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 
um, I think we've heard too many times, you know, over and over that um, each each young person that's still being held, you know, behind, you know, barbed wire in de at detention centers, you know, they they leave their countries, um, you know, with with so much education um, in their bag and like the scientists we just heard earlier. Mm. Um, you know, it's not like these people are lazy. They're they're wanting to change the world um, with everybody else, and I think that's why we need to be even more welcoming in this case. You know. Yeah, um, I I read your your story, and one thing that really stood out to me was um, your you know your your father asking having to ask for to beg for food um, for your mother when she was pregnant, and 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 um, him taking all your fruit because <laughs> your mom could only eat fruit. I um, mean, I know there, there um, in November, November twenty second, actually, there was a big call for children to be out of detention by Christmas, um, and and that's great. I, I hope that that happens. Um, fingers crossed. We're st I, I'm still waiting to hear back. I guess I don't know what's going on with that. Um, but I also, when I heard that, I I thought about the parents, and you know. In, like people who say the children have done nothing wrong, I feel like it implies that their parents have done something wrong, and I, I guess I want to reiterate the fact that the parents have done nothing wrong. It's not a crime to seek asylum. Um, you know, they're they're keeping their children safe. They run for their children. Um, so yeah, what what do you think of that when you think of your father and your mother? Well, I am. Um, I wouldn't be here if it went for my parents. Um, I think it. Um, y you have to be uh, very, very brave to, um, you know, um, to risk your life. You know, because that's what you're doing. Uh, not only are you um, risking, it, you know, it, it, like in 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 our cases, you don't. It's not like you sell your house, you do this thing and do that thing in order to prepare for a new adventure. You just literally flee and you leave your country and everything and everyone you know behind um, for unpredictable waves, you know, basically. Mm. You you throw yourself um, at the sea and you're at the mercy of um, a future that you have no idea about. Um, but if you're willing, that goes to say that uh, there's a, you know, there's a really pressing reason for that and that's what parents are doing and i think um you know refugees are people that haven't that haven't committed any offenses these parents that you know um place their children in 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 such a risky environment in in danger um are doing it to for, for the better uh, for, to to save their to save their lives to um provide for a better future i mean that's what every every parent would would dream of you know and that's what parents are doing um and and people would do anything for their families it's uh, it's not really hard to imagine um it could happen to anyone anytime and that's what people do um, and I, I, that's what's heartbreaking because um, we tend to separate the parents, but they're in the same boat, yeah. <laughs> you know, and they're on the same boat here. Yeah. Um, and there's a reason why, you know, the, the children wouldn't be there, they wouldn't be saved if it went for the parents. It ha the decision must come from them as well. So um, I think the parents need to be um, not only consoled, but uh, appreciated very much for their, uh, you know, magnificent efforts. 
mm. um, in putting their lives and their children's lives at risk to save their lives. So I think you're right. We need to uh, really appreciate that rather than, you know, separate them uh, by saying, oh, the parents may remain, but the children should go into the community. I think mm. um, everybody's lives are important here and we should really appreciate and honor that. Yeah. So how did your, your family go finally sitting into the community for the first time when they when they got out of detention? How, how, how was it for them? I think um, the obvious answer would be, at least from my um, mind, is that it's it's been very difficult. I think it's taken us 15 to 16 years now um, to really settle. I can finally comfortably say, okay, yeah, I am really Australian. <laughs> I mean, I... I, I sort of, because um, it's like a midlife crisis, you know, mm. once you start, uh, uh, why I say this, uh, once you start settling in, in in a new place, then from that point on, especially for refugees and people in our shoes, you know, um, it kind of starts from the day you walk into a new environment. It's as though you didn't live before then. And then, you know, it's, it's a, in this context, it really feels like that. Um, and a lot of people, a lot of my friends have also have said this. They say my life sort of started from the day I walked into this new country because that's where I realized my dreams. That's where I saw, I smelt freedom for the first time. And that's very important because without freedom, you really can't grow and um, change and blossom into the, 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 you know, the subject you were meant to become. And so that's um, that's what's happening. And that, that's why um, uh, it took us a long time and growth takes a long time. Um, and um, settling into the community uh, took its own course for different siblings and for different parents as well, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, I myself, since I'm a bit adventurous and out there, so it, it was a bit easier for, my, for me because from the from first day I just walked into the community and started volunteering here and there without even knowing what program I was volunteering for. So it was kind of like... Um, just just do things and get to know people and uh, you know put on an uh, put an uh, put an Aussie accent on but then I realized <laughs> no I have to ditch it because it didn't sound <laughs> and then I had to uh, now I've settled with my own yeah, your so. own accent it sounds beautiful don't oh, worry thank um, you so so in in that strain um, do you have any suggestions on how people in the community can can make newly arrived refugees feel more welcome and make it a bit easier for them I think. Um, before anything, it um, without sounding uh, making it sound like a cliche, but honestly, um, I think what we first of all need to do or understand is that we need to accept and tolerate other people. If we can do that first within ourselves, then uh, the um, the uh, you know carrying whatever else out becomes much more um, uh, you know like it becomes easier because. Um, if we can accept it in our hearts that, okay, these are people that are exactly like us. Okay, they come from different parts of the world, but this could have happened to me. We need to switch roles, you know, yeah. and, and um, at least in our imaginations, you know. Yes. Um, and that's important. It's like reading a novel. You put your place into the character's shoes. Um, and that's, that's it's, it's not that hard, you know. Um, but um, in terms of, uh, I think... Um, it is 
sorry, it, it, um, the other part of the question I just um, tend to have forgotten. Oh, no, no it was yeah. just um, how can people make, yes. pe- people make refugees feel more welcome? Yes, yeah, uh, exactly. I think uh, we just need to welcome, um, if, first of all, if we understand them, and then uh, welcoming refugees um, into um, the community um, so that they don't feel isolated because yeah. we really want to um, have, you know, a, a, we want to provide... Um, I know it sounds like a big call, but you know, I think the 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 earlier we do this, the better for everybody yes. as well. You know, because we don't want to create segregation within our society, and we want to, the assimilation starts within us and then um, with us as well. So, I think yeah, the earlier the better. Yeah, that's good. That's really good because you hear you read stories where you know it, t- it took a year and a half for them to actually meet a friend, or and, and you're like, why is this taking so long? A year and a half, like. For, for someone to reach out and so yeah that's, that's right. a very very good point um so this this is a bit of a hard question um australia is one of the only countries in the world who have mandatory detention of asylum seekers and they have been asked time and time again by the un and other world leaders to get rid of this policy um as a person who has been in in mandatory detention in your opinion what are the worst effects of of that on a person or on a child um well, first of all, I really appreciate this question, and I think this question should be dealt with, uh, um, you know, in open forums, um, perhaps even inviting refugees. Um, I think this is a really good call. Um, I think Australian mandatory detention has a really grotesque prison-like, um, uh, you know, uh, setup to it, and that's uh, that's damaging in itself because, as I mentioned earlier, if you haven't committed a crime and you're uh, you know, you are held behind bars. You are you are j- j- jailed. Um, just imagine the the ramifications and the misunderstanding from that person's p- perspective, because you have uh, you, when you're fleeing uh, along the journey. You're, when, when I was on the boat, I was thinking, oh wow, I'm I'm walking towards freedom, and then and then you are you know, and then all of a sudden a hard brick wall is erected right in front of you blocking your vision and everything and i'm not saying you know things should be uh, you know uh, served on a you know golden platter to everybody because that's what the reality is not like but what i'm saying is we can make things easier especially from from a government's perspective governments can do a lot a lot more than than we can i mean we're spending way more on sending people exactly. offshore than we can just um uh, than we you know that we can than we can if we just invited people into the community and helped uh, other, you know, we need to empower other organizations out there within the community to help out. If the, the government needs to work with with them with with the community, yes, and the community is made up of, you know, th- these beautiful gems that are organizations and NGOs and other people that are interested. Why else are you doing this? Why else am I speaking about this? Why else is the, did the behind the wire project come come into being? You know, everybody's taking their own time. I mean, people these days, a lot of people are not even earning money because they want to follow their passion. And why are they following following their passion? Because the answers to their dreams or the, the 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 world that they want to see and be in is not provided so people are, are this is some sort of a revolution or you know um so i think it's important for the government to work with the community than just to have a, a mind of of their own um and i think uh, the 
earlier we resolve these cases, the earlier we bring people into the community, the better uh, uh, you know, uh, we can guarantee the security and, and I mean, I know I'm saying those words that should come from a minister's point of view, <laughs> but I think everything is about safety and security as well, at least from a government's perspective. And if we can welcome people in, um, and you know, uh, help people out in terms of counselling and making them feel at home, and uh, you know, um, and uh, just hearing them out. We we really are. We will. We can do amazing things. All right. Um, oh, it it sucks we don't have enough time. I could talk to you forever. Um, just quickly, one for Andre. Just fly through it. Um, how has behind the wire um, affected you, and and what important things have you learned from it? Well, um, I think as all the listeners just heard, the the way the the most important thing that I've learned through behind the wire has been to listen to people like Donna. Um, there's not much need for um, there's much less need to hear from the ministers that she referred to, or even from um, necessarily from advocates. It, it's there's no need for us to take up that space because people like Donna are more than capable of um, speaking incredibly and passionately. So. Thank you so much, guys, for coming in. Thank I wish, you very much. I wish much. our show went Thanks. for an hour. D Donna is amazing. If you've run into her on the street, please speak to her. Um, here's a, clo <laughs> here's a closing quote for today, which I think is, is really amazing. Um, it's, it's from Mitch Al Album, um, from his book, For One More Day. And it goes, but there is a story behind everything, how a picture got on a wall, how a scar got on your face. Sometimes the stories are simple, and sometimes they are hard and heartbreaking. But behind all your stories is always your mother's story, because hers is where yours begins. Thank you for listening. This is Refugee Radio on 3CR. Sail, sail a mile in my shoes. Sail, sail a mile in my shoes. Sail. Shoes and tell me what you'd do if it happened to you. Sail a mile in my shoes now, would you still have that point of view? Sail, sail a mile in my shoes. Tell